Amen. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13, and so I invite you to turn to Mark 13, and we're going to cover the entire chapter today. Uh, we've been working through this passage for a, uh, a couple weeks now, and Jesus in Mark chapter 13 is making two different predictions about two different events and two different times. And last week was part one of this message, and we will continue it this week with part two. And to set this up, let me just say it this way. Um, Jesus commands us multiple times in this passage that we are to be watchful. We're to be alert. We're to be ready. We are to be prepared as the redeemed of Jesus Christ for his imminent second return. Do you remember the first time you heard about Jesus and his return? I was raised in a family that rarely attended church and even more infrequently read the Bible uh, I didn't know much about Jesus. I didn't know much about the Bible. And I remember hearing about Jesus' second coming as a lost middle school kid, maybe eighth grade. And at the end of the day, uh, if you've ever seen middle schoolers let out of a school, right? It's like, a, it's like a bull rider. You know, they open that gate and the bull is cranked up and ready to go, right? That's kind of how middle school... Uh, end of school is they sort of flood the gates they open up and you know just it's sort of controlled chaos in the pickup line and in the bus line and well this is kind of what it was normal for us and and so I remember being let out of the gates as an eighth grader and coming out of the building and within a few minutes realizing that there was something eerie happening uh, there was no um, chaos there was no, um, no discernible noise. There was uh, a, a large, I don't know, maybe 400 students at my school, and there were large groups of my classmates, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and they were in maybe four different groups. Uh, and there were some teachers around, but, but mostly there were high school students or junior high students, I don't know which, from the school across the street who had come over. And as I found my way into a group, I looked around and everyone was listening to a passionate speaker who was basically preaching a message about Jesus' second coming. And at first I thought it was a joke, and when I looked around, none of my classmates were laughing, none of the adults were stopping these other students but there seemed to be uh, an electricity in the air. There was an eeriness. There was a, it was a somber, intense scene. I expected almost to walk up and find someone who had been hit by a car, but there was nothing like that. There was just someone declaring boldly and loudly that Jesus would return and that we would need to be ready. 
I wish I could remember more. I, I don't know who organized it. I don't know if it was spontaneous. I don't know if, if it was a prayed for event. I don't know if it was a bit of a moment of spiritual awakening. Uh, to my memory, it only lasted 10 or 15 minutes, but it left a deep impression on my irreligious, immoral, sort of atheistic, confused soul at the time. I can only tell you that I was absolutely unprepared for the return of Jesus on that day. I had zero preparation. I had zero readiness, zero alertness. I didn't even really know anything about Jesus other than it was a word that was used to express anger or disgust or frustration or exclamation. It was a word thrown flippantly around uh, in my circles, and there was definitely no reverence for Jesus, certainly no preparation for him coming again. It would take four or more years before I would actually make peace with God Almighty and I would give my life to Jesus Christ and become a follower of Christ and start to understand. Since becoming a Christ follower, me, uh, maybe just like you, have had seasons of readiness seasons of preparedness, seasons where I was walking closely to the Lord Jesus, where I was walking in his word, where I was pursuing holiness, where I was dedicated to the fellowship of sincere Christ followers. I didn't miss worship. I didn't miss accountability. I didn't miss small group. I didn't miss Bible study. I woke up early. I went to bed vigilant, careful for my soul during those seasons of readiness. I can also confess that there were seasons of blatant sinfulness, of walking away from the Lord, of doubt, of personal struggle with sin, of difficulty, of confusion, of bitterness, deep regret, and also times and seasons in between. Seasons of just distraction, seasons of wandering, seasons of pursuing hobbies, seasons of general unpreparedness and of going through the motions. I think the Christian life is full of those sorts of experiences. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's difficult to maintain a pace at which we pursue Jesus vigilantly and we remain alert. But what I have lacked is what I want to talk to you about this morning, and that is walking in readiness and consistent alertness, also known as watchfulness. Watchfulness is a lost spiritual discipline, one that the Puritans and others were very aware of. This is Jesus' main command here, by the way. He's going to say it five times. I want you to count, double check, make sure as we read through these 37 verses, make sure I didn't count, miscount, the number of times that he says, be on alert or stay awake or be ready. Some call to general watchfulness and preparedness. We're going to read the text in just a minute, all of chapter 13. And I want you to see here that that's Jesus' main command. I'm, I'm, I'm not saving the main point of the message for some climax later, I want you to know right up front, that's what I'm going to talk about. You might have come with an expectation that we were going to break out charts and courses about the millennial reign and about the tribulation and 
positions on where in which the church will be resurrected and the judgment day and all of these different sorts of things. I preached a five-week series about that in 2017 and have done so many times. Uh, but we're going to touch on those second coming issues that Jesus mentions in this chapter. But for the most part, Jesus commands us to be alert and watchful and ready. And that's where I want us to land this morning, to be watchful, to stay awake, to be alert, to be prepared for his coming. I feel like and I sense that that is the message here, a message of readiness. And you'll see that as we go through the passage. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn titled, I Want a Principle Within. I want you to think about these lyrics as we begin to read our passage today because it describes watchfulness. He says, I want a principle within of watchful, godly fear. I want a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire to catch the wandering of my will and to quench that kindling fire. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve, grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make, awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart. The mountain from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. O oh, may the least omission pain my reawakened soul, and drive me to that blood again, which makes the wounded whole. Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning in preparation to hear your word, I pray that should you return today, that you would find a watchful, an alert, and a ready bunch of Christ followers here. I pray that we would be careful of our souls, that we would be renewed in our faith this morning by your word, that we would be renewed by accountability and by taking serious the command to be right with you, to repent and turn from our sins, that times of refreshing may come, that we may experience your goodness that you would bind our wandering hearts to thee, that you would cause us to stay so close to you that we would dwell under the wings of the Almighty and in your shadow we would find our dwelling place. Would you go before us? Would you speak by your Holy Spirit and by your word? For that is what will last, not my words. Take this time and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you follow along? Let's read Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. Let's read it together. The word says, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you, do you see these great buildings? There will be left, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is a shocking statement. The stones were in some places 40 feet wide by 18 feet tall by 12 feet deep. 
uh, an archaeological m marvel that Herod took 46 years to build this temple and Jesus is telling them, you see this sure foundation? It won't be here. This captures the disciples' attention. And in verse 3, as they leave the temple area, they go across the Kidron Valley and they climb the Mount of Olives some 2,700 feet above sea level. And as they are on top of the Mount of Olives, they are gazing down at the city of Jerusalem, which sits 300 feet below them. And as Jesus is sitting there in this olive grove, Opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately, verse 4, tell us, when are these things going to be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They want to know, when, when is this temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs? How should we know? How can we tell that this is going to happen? Partially out of fear, maybe. Partially out of wonder. Partially out of curiosity. But they want to know what's going to happen. Matthew 24 and Mark and Luke, all three called the synoptic gospels, that is soon one optic view, three gospels viewed through one lens called the synoptic gospels, all three contain this Olivet Discourse, Jesus describing what's going to happen. In the parallel passage in Matthew 24, the disciples ask a third question. They say, well, what's going to be this, uh, when is this going to happen, the temple destruction? What are the signs? That's the second question of the temple destruction. And the third question that is recorded in Matthew 24, 3, which is not recorded in Mark, are what are the signs of the end of the age, the end of the age of man, and the sign of your coming? They ask that third question, and so Jesus is going to answer now both of those events. When the temple will be destroyed, that's one. And number two, when the end of the age of man will be and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So follow. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 5, after they asked the question, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now some of this is primarily about the temple destruction. 
This will be fulfilled in a matter of years. Stephen will be uh, placed on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. He will be given a sermon in, uh, in Acts chapter 8, uh, Acts chapter 7 as well. And then Stephen will be martyred. He will be martyred when he cries out, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. They stone him to death. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, Stephen would be the, one of the first fulfillments of this particular prophecy. Jesus is blending the immediate future and the distant future events in what is known as the mountain range view of prophet, uh, prophetic events. He is showing things that will happen immediately as well as things that will happen in the distant future. Verse 14, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, that is, that which is hated that creates destruction. It happened first in the intertestamental period with um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who set up an altar and burned a pig on the altar uh, in the temple and also set up an idol to um, a false god and burned it there. And that kicked off the Maccabean revolt. Um, when you see the abomination of desolation prophesied in Daniel, that just means when you see someone in the temple that shouldn't be there, um, namely the Romans in AD 70 under General Titus coming into Israel, coming into Jerusalem, coming into the temple area. When you see that, that is a signal, Jesus is saying. That's the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 15, let the one in the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it won't happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pause there for a second. Jesus rightfully predicts in verse 30 that some of these events would take place within the generation of the disciples, and indeed they did in 70 AD, just 40 or so years later. The temple was destroyed. The abomination of desolation was set up. The Roman uh, 
General Titus came in with two legions to slaughter every Jew living in Jerusalem and the surrounding area and to destroy the temple completely. Not a stone left upon another. Jesus predicts that rightly, but some of these prophecies that Jesus gives also describe future events, the future tribulation, and we'll get into that in a minute. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, somehow, that verse gets translated into people's ears as a command to predict the day, right? You see all kinds of people who are always trying to put charts and graphs and do numerology and try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Right? So Jesus very clearly says, concerning that day or hour, no one even knows, and yet there's no shortage of people who are ready to tell you the day that Jesus is going to come back in a deceitful way, leading people astray, damaging the faith of others. Jesus clearly says, no one knows. Not angels, not the Son, only the Father. And the command in verse 33 again for the third time, is to be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I think it's very clear in the repetition, in the commands that Jesus gives, that he is commanding us to be awake, to live presently in light of a future reality. And you do that all the time. You live today in light of future realities. The older you get, the more you start to think about retirement. You begin to budget, you begin to save, you begin to spend differently, you begin to view your retirement years differently. The future, you view it differently and you live differently today. Even in short ways and ways that are not far off. Many of you are beginning school or planning for a school year or planning for a vacation planning for a race. You live differently today in light of future events. And Jesus' command to you today is that in light of future eschatological end times events, live differently today. That's the point of our passage today. Last week we talked about all the signs and symbols regarding the temple and its destruction in 70 AD. This morning we're focusing on the longer, distant future events that Jesus prophesies about. And those prophecies that Jesus gives are a broad sketch, a general painting, an impressionistic view, only to his disciples, only what they needed to know, in 33 or so AD on the Mount of Olives the night before Jesus would be betrayed. 40 years later, on the island of Patmos, Jesus appears in his resurrected form to who? To the apostle John. And on the island of Patmos, 
give or take a few years, maybe 90 AD, so about 60 years later, Jesus is going to give what is known as the Revelation of John, filling in a lot of those details about his second coming. That would have happened after the temple destruction. The primary command here in this passage is watchfulness. It's not to predict the date. It's not to figure out if you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, amillennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, rapture kind of person, right? All those things are important. They make you sound really educated. All you have to do is throw out some big theological terms and people kind of get intimidated. But, but that's not the goal of Jesus' command here. It's not for you to show off your knowledge of the end times and your familiarity with charts and graphs and things like that. Your goal is to be ready, alert, and watchful and prepared when Jesus comes. It's a trap for us to get so caught up in looking for signs and wonders and Jesus coming and movements and all of these things that we're not ready. Our eye is on, not on Jesus Christ and his return, but on signs and wonders and miracles and movements and, and people get caught up into this and it becomes a fruitless, worthless event. You should be aware of what's coming, but the primary command is to be watchful and alert. So let's look back at the primary text here and we'll just make a few notes about the future coming of Jesus. Look at verses 3 and let's start at some of these signs about the second coming of Jesus. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, <clears throat> the disciples say, when are these things going to happen? Verse 5, Jesus says, don't let anyone lead you astray. Many people will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not at that point. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. These are just birth pains. What does this mean? Jesus is giving his disciples on the night before his betrayal a sketch, a general idea of what will take place. <clears throat> he tells of imposters, many people claiming to be Jesus, and many people coming in the name of Jesus we see clearly some of that happening today. America and one of its Christian America, one of its primary exports is a false gospel, a gospel that we have exported around the world that does not preach repentance and faith and judgment to come. It does not preach about the righteousness of God and the need to stay close to Jesus in the word. It preaches a gospel that says Jesus primarily came so that you can have health and wealth and prosperity and gold fillings in your teeth and, um, you know, miraculous stretched out heels and super extended arms and legs. It, it preaches a gospel that captures people whose greatest desire is not for repentance, not to be made right with God, but only a desire for their own well-being and their own health and their own wealth and their own prosperity. They are going in Jesus' name, preaching a false gospel, and they fulfill some of what Jesus describes as imposters coming in his name with a false gospel. That's just to name a few, not to mention the various cults and different religions and people who are claiming to be messiahs. 
He says wars and rumors of wars. He describes earthquakes, famines. He just gives them a broad stroke of these birth pain events. Some believe that these birth pain events, these four things that Jesus points to here in Mark, correspond to the four horsemen of the apocalypse recorded in Revelation chapter 6. Just briefly flip over to Revelation chapter 6 and let's look at these four horsemen of the apocalypse and see where if there's a match. So a lot of theologians believe that Jesus is describing in broad strokes what he describes in greater detail in the bold judgments and in the trumpet judgments and in the seal judgments and so touched off in Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 through 8. See if there's some correspondence you decide. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Many people see in this a false messiah. A messiah was simply a conquering hero, a conquering leader who leads people to a, a state of victory. During the time of Jesus' arrival, 20 years before, maybe 40 years before, and, and the brief period afterward, there were 40 people who claimed to be the Messiah, according to historians. People who rose up and they came as a conquering military hero to lead Israel out of bondage from Rome. That is what was described as a Messiah. And so Jesus in Mark 13, maybe corresponding to Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 2, this white horse rider is a type of Messiah who is leading people to victory as a false Messiah, a world conquering king, a crowning, also known as an Antichrist. Indeed, 1 John says that the day of Antichrist is coming. Indeed, there are many Antichrists who will come, according to 1 John. This is something like a political hero that the people of the world in rebellion to God, will follow. Doesn't sound too far-fetched in our political climate, does it? That one world leader would rise up and would have deceptive ability to lead astray people who have already decided that there is no God, that there is no Jesus, that the Bible is false. This one person will collect and gather around them a massive world following, leading people away from God, away from righteousness, and into this period of being a false messiah. And the, Jesus is telling us, be warned, that's going to happen. Verse 3 of Revelation 6, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. The red horse is the war horse. I want you to notice the red horse has authority to remove peace. Think about that removal of peace. In the days of Noah, in Genesis, there was such violence on the earth that God saw the wickedness of man's heart was only evil all the time, and that he his heart hurt that he had created man, and he determined to bring an end to creation and to mankind. 
since the reestablishment in the Noahic covenant and the rainbow covenant with, uh, that reminds God that he would not destroy us again, there has been restraining grace. Now, listen, people of God, you and I should be eternally grateful for the restraining grace of God. The restraining grace of God basically acknowledges that we are sinners in total depravity, and yet we are not as sinful as we could be. God holds us back. He restrains our appetite for sin and for destruction. Think about it this way. In my personal devotional times, uh, working through the book of Job over the past few weeks, the moment Satan had opportunity with Job, the moment God lifted the restraining, protective grace surrounding Job, that very day, four uh, messengers come to Job and describe, describe the utter, complete destruction of everything that God removed his restraining grace from Satan around. Immediately it was removed. His children died. His flocks were carried away. Raiding parties came. Everything was destroyed by elements and people and fire. And, and everything that God removed his restraining grace from, Satan immediately filled that vacuum with hate and violence and destruction. Romans 1, verses 18 through 36 describe the judgment of God in removing, restraining grace on a culture that has rejected Him. He says, what is known about God is plain to people, and God has made it known to them in Romans 1, 18, but men have suppressed the truth in their hearts. They have chosen to reject the truth. And because of their rejection, eventually God gives them over to three removals of restraining grace. You want to keep sinning, I will give you, I'll remove my restraint. You will sin. You want to sin, you'll sin more. I had a high school friend whose uh, dad caught him smoking cigarettes. Right? He woke him up early the next morning and he gave him two packs of cigarettes and said, you're going to smoke every last one of these in the next hour until you vomit. Right? You, you smoke one cigarette at a party, you come in smelling like smoke, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you smoke all you can until you're sick of it. As an act of grace, the kid never smoked a cigarette again, right? This sort of act of grace, this restraining. God says, I'm going to remove that in Romans 1. You want to sin? I'm going to allow you, as an act of judgment, to give you a belly full of your sin. Hosea says it this way, they sow to the wind and they reap what? The whirlwind in Hosea 8, 7. The red horse the war horse is the removal of restraining grace. God removing his hand of holding people back from being as sinful as they can be. And that will be lifted during this period of tribulation. Verse 5 of Romans 6, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, there was a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, representing economic failure and famine. Uh, in verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, there was a pale horse, or a sickly horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and with wild beasts of the earth. There will be a lifting of the restraining grace of God, not just on humanity, but on the beasts 
Currently, right now, uh, in June, according to Locust Watch, there has been a record swarm of invading pestilence and locusts all over the Horn of Africa and all over different parts of the Middle East, experiencing some of the worst locust destruction that they've experienced in decades. This is a description and reminds us of the plagues of Egypt from the book of Exodus, where frogs and gnats and locusts and other signs and plagues that God gives, all of those things will be unleashed during this time. Jesus compares it in Mark 13 saying, there will never be a time of tribulation like this. That period of time will be cut short because of the depth of its tribulation. Let's flip back over to Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> Typical pattern in the three trumpets, I mean in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and the seven seals are that there will be four earthly signs that correspond to each other, similar to the horses. And then that will be followed by three cosmological or uh, space sort of signs, sun darkened, moon, stars, those kinds of things cast away. Jesus touches in broad strokes that as well here in Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 24. In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, great comets and cosmological events in, 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 uh, colliding with the earth. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And at that point, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his redeemed from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to heaven. Let's skip over to verse 32 and finish in verses 32 through 37 here. Jesus says, concerning that day or that time, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, not the Father, only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. You don't know when the time will come. I've been solo dad this week. Julie drove Kennedy to college uh, on Monday, moved her in. And so my kids have been emotionally neglected this week. I haven't hugged them very much. I haven't listened to their emotions and their feelings. Julie does a great job of some of those things. I think on one night uh, at 10 o'clock, one of them said, I'm hungry for dinner. I said, oh my gosh, you didn't eat earlier? And I just wasn't very good, right? It took me a while to switch into responsible dad mode uh, many times. I got them where they needed to be. They're here today. They're clothed. Uh, they're showered. All those things are bonuses in the wind column. I think Julie's watching right now. And uh, so I may be in trouble later. But on Saturday, I made a list of 14 chores. And I said, uh, pick a number, right, between 1 and 14. And they went around in a circle and they each picked one. I needed them to be busy because I had to get the sermon ready. And I had been doing double duty all week. And so I needed a couple of hours just to focus. And I thought, no way better than chores, right? So they all picked their numbers and they, I set them loose in the house. The house smells wonderfully bleached and clean. They did a great job. But at some point of the day, I said, now listen, I'm coming back. <laughs> and when I come back, I want to see progress and I want to see work I didn't tell him when I was coming back I just said I'm coming back right I wasn't planning on using this as an illustration it just 
I just needed a couple hours of freedom, amen, right? Moms, dads, you understand that? You feel that sometimes? You just need uh, some free time there. You need some uh, productive time. And around 6 o'clock, maybe 5.30, I texted Ellie and said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Tell him to be ready. Tell him to be ready. And when, when I walked in, there was a, like cockroaches in the light, right? I just flipped the light on. There was a scurrying and there was a general activity. And I checked the progress on each kid. How would you do? One of them, I did great. I did all my chores. Another one, I'm in mid-progress. And another one, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. Still have a little ways to go. And there was a call by Jesus for each of us to be ready, to be alert, to be fruitful, to be productive, to be working in this passage. He says it in verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. You don't know what time he will come. It's like a man who goes on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each one with their work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now I can just brag on my kids, they did a great job. The house is cleaner, way cleaner than it was before, and they did a fantastic job. Will Jesus find each of us as diligent as they were? Ready and alert. He says, stay awake. You don't know when he's going to come, whether in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, meaning the disciples, verse 37, what I say to you guys, I say to everybody, all the Christ followers for all the generations to come, Jesus' command to you is stay awake, Gregorio, Blepo, stay prepared, be vigilant. You didn't know that that's what Gregoire meant, was, did you? Was to be vigilant, to be um, a sentinel. All through the Psalms, all through, there's a call for watchfulness, to be ready, to be alert, to be as a man on the wall. I, I gave you a listening guide. You don't have to look at it. It's really for your uh, ability just to look at it later. But I included almost every passage in the New Testament where Jesus describes the call to be alert and be vigilant and be watchful, to stay awake. Let me just hit a couple of the high points here. In all the Gospels, he includes a call to watchfulness in these synoptic Gospels. Look at uh, Luke 21, or just listen to Luke 21, verses 34 through 36. He says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that that day would come upon you suddenly like a trap. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That's the general summary from Matthew, Mark, and Luke there in Luke chapter 21. In Matthew 26, just the next day from the current setting where we are on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is asking the disciples, right after Judas has gone out to betray him, what does Jesus tell Peter, James, and John? Will you come and watch with me for an hour? My soul is in turmoil. Will you come and pray? And Jesus finds them sleeping, and he says to Peter in Matthew 26, 40, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many times have we had to acknowledge that? That our flesh is weak, 
that in our spirit, like Paul in Romans 7, we desire the good and the godly, and yet our, our flesh is weak. The call for Jesus is that by waiting and being alert and vigilant and watchful, that we may not fall into temptation. In Acts chapter 20, there is a call for pastors to pay careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In Romans 13, 11 through 14, he says, Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. Your salvation is nearer to you now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. Galatians 6, the warning, if someone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And over and over 26 passages that describe the need for alertness and watchfulness. If you neglect watchfulness, you hinder all other spiritual practices. Watchfulness has been described as the whetstone of all the spiritual disciplines, the one that keeps every other practice and habit sharp. If you want to take this command seriously, you will leave with a healthy fear of God and a healthy desire to be alert and to be watchful and to be prepared and to be ready. Now the greatest news about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that though your sins are like scarlet, though your sins are like crimson, they can be whiter than snow. The greatest way that you can be prepared and alert and ready is number one by getting right with God through faith in Jesus Christ by giving your life to Jesus Christ bowing the knee and in final and full submission saying I surrender all I surrender all I've walked in the, my own ways long enough I've walked in sin, I've experienced the pain of sin, the destruction of sin, the destruction of sinful choices of my own fleshly desires. Jesus, I repent from all of that, and I surrender all, and I give my life to you. If you would be alert today, if you would be alert today, if you would be watchful, if you would be ready, number one, make peace with God through Jesus Christ. Not by the own works of your flesh, by works no one can be saved, only by surrender and faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've neglected that. Maybe you thought, I'll just do that later when I get older, after I've lived a little. No one has promised today. Luke writes in Acts that today is the day of salvation. No one knows the day or the hour of their death. Don't put it off. Get right with God today. That's the number one way that you can be ready. If you're not yet a Christ follower, don't put off these words. Don't put off this warning. Get right 
with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 10 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith shall be saved. Like that day at Whittier Middle School in Norman, Oklahoma as an 8th grader, me experiencing the heightened sense of God's presence and understanding the warnings that I was receiving led to a diligence to take seriously the next time I heard about Jesus and the next time and the next time so that four years from that time I was a redeemed Christ follower. Number two, Christ follower. If you've already given your life to Christ, maybe you have been weighed down with drunkenness and dissipation and immorality. Maybe you have wandered as Charles Wesley's hymn described, our wandering heart. Maybe you have been lured to sleep by wealth and by comfort and by pleasures. Maybe the weeds of this world have choked out the fruit that God has planted. Maybe you have been um, caught in a trap of addiction or struggle or sin. The Word commands us to restore one another gently, taking watch that none of us also fall into that. You must be alert, Christ follower. Though your sins were as crimson, they can be white as snow today. The grace that saved you is the grace that sustains you, and that future grace allows you to claim 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can leave here today having confessed your sins to God with a heart of repentance and you can move forward in readiness despite the sins that you might have committed last night or even this morning. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is that there is forgiveness and redemption and grace in the body of Christ within this gathering of a few hundred people in this grass grove. You could go to any one person and they could say, Brother, I've sinned. Sister, I've sinned. And they would say, let's pray, and you're forgiven, and they could counsel you with truth and restore you. You could say, maybe I'm addicted, maybe I'm struggling in some ways. There is, there is help within the body of Christ. It's the enemy who wants you isolated and outside. The worst thing you can do is repeatedly skip the gathering of the body of Christ. If for one only reason, for the sake of watchfulness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in weakness, in my own brokenness, in imperfection, confessing that there are times when I am not alert, when I am not ready, when I am susceptible to temptation and weakness, I urge us all, myself included, to be alert, to be ready, to stay awake. Father, would you take your word today? Would you take the seriousness of it? Would you take the warnings of it? And would you cast us forward to a day of judgment when all the secret deeds of man and men and women, all the things that we thought no one would ever see will be brought to light. Would you cast us forward to that day when all will be revealed and when our sins we will receive the right penalty for our sins unless we put our faith in the one who willingly received that right penalty. 
It's my prayer today that anyone who is hearing my voice today would fully and finally repent of their sins and place their faith in you, Jesus, for the first time, maybe. It's also my prayer, Lord Jesus, that brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, children, all those who have named the name of Christ and been baptized and would call themselves Christ follower, that they would take the command in spite of the sins of yesterday and last week and last month, that they might walk today in newness of life. That you would bring about a revival in a pursuit of righteousness and vigilance and alertness and wakefulness, watchfulness within this body of Christ. That when you return, you may find us ready. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.